a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Welcome to another edition of Bearing Arms, Cam and Company. My name is Cam Edwards. I'm glad you're with us on the program today. Hope you had a uh, good weekend. Maybe you had a chance to exercise your right to keep and bear arms just a little bit. Uh, hopefully, uh, in a uh, non-threatening situation, hopefully you did not have to uh, act in self-defense. We know, of course, that the violent crime is on the rise across the country, including a, another violent weekend in Washington, D.C., a lot of headlines about uh, what happened on Saturday night where the uh, Washington Nationals game suspended after a drive-by shooting outside of Nationals Park. Uh, and, of course, this has led to uh, all kinds of hand-wringing and commentary. Uh, we've got a piece of Tiberian Arms today uh, responding to the argument that there's just too many guns out there, which uh, is not the case. If, if, if more guns led to more crime, then our violent crime rate in the United States would be twice what it was 20 years ago instead of half of what it was 20 years ago, because we've got more guns, more legal gun owners. And yet, even with the increase in crime that began in March of last year, actually more like uh, June of last year, late May after the death of George Floyd, uh, violent crime is still nowhere near what it was uh, in its highs in the early 1990s. So I dispute completely the idea that uh, more guns equals more crime. But we are uh, having that argument about what to do about the rising crime rate in the Wall Street Journal today with an uh, interesting piece. Best answers to rising gun violence may be local ones. Uh, this is not anything new. In fact, this is uh, basically the Wall Street Journal talking about something that we've discussed both here on this program and at Bearing Arms quite a bit uh, over the last year. And that is that when it comes to fighting violent crime, gun control isn't the way to do it. Gun control casts this wide net over every legal gun owner in this country with the hopes of ensnaring a criminal here or there, as opposed to programs that focus from the get-go on those who are actually driving the violence. Now, in the uh, Wall Street Journal, uh, Gerald Sieb starts out by talking about what happened in Washington, D.C. Uh, over the weekend and, uh, and, and then starts to try to draw some conclusions. He says, quote, while the most high-profile incidents in recent days happen to occur in Washington, the current political alignment in Washington seems ill-equipped to provide the best answers. It seems increasingly clear that there are simply too many powerful guns circulating on America's streets, yet Republicans are certain to oppose en masse almost all gun control measures. Meanwhile, last year's defund the police movement among some Democrats seems particularly misplaced now as a political matter, it almost certainly cost Democrats ground in last fall's election, and as a practical matter, probably contributed to a decline in hiring and retention of police officers. Now, again, I dispute Sieb's assertion that we'll just have too many uh, high-powered guns out there. I again, if the number of firearms in circulation directly correlated to violent crime, our violent crime rate would be far higher than it is right now. In fact, it would have been going up year after year after year after year which is not the case. Violent crime started declining in the early 1990s, continued that decline uh, for the most part. You know, you had a, a year here or there where maybe crime ticked up, but then continued its drop ever since. Really until last summer, violent crime had been dropping for almost 20 years in this country to the lowest level seen in over 50 years. If more guns equals more crime had any validity, that wouldn't have happened. So, no, the answer is not that we just have uh, too many guns out there. The answer is we've got too many criminals. And we have too many people who feel like they can get away with committing violent crimes without any consequences. 
which is where Sieb, I think, is uh, starts to take the conversation in a, a more fruitful direction. Uh, he points out during the recent meetings of the White House between uh, the Biden administration and uh, gun control activists, anti-gun mayors, that there was one group uh, talking up a strategy that, frankly, doesn't involve new gun control laws, uh, community violence intervention. Steve writes, uh, Susan Rice, the White House domestic policy advisor, says she was struck in the meetings Mr. Biden held with local law enforcement officials by the critical importance those leaders attached to an idea called community violence intervention. The premise of CVI is that the majority of gun violence is perpetrated by small groups of people, many usually already known to local leaders. CVI programs panel community activists and leaders to work on the streets, identifying disputes and individuals with the potential to produce violence, intervene to defuse those problems, and deliver stern warnings of harsh consequences if violence results. Well, I got to say, that is, I think, a, a fairly apt description of a lot of these uh, community violence intervention programs. And I'm a fan of these CVI programs that actually have a proven track record of success. There is one thing, however, that I would note. Those stern warnings about consequences if violence continues mean nothing if they're empty promises. You've got to deliver on that. And so, to my mind, the best community violence intervention program that's out there is a program called Operation Ceasefire, which has all of the carrots that Susan Rice talked about, right? Uh, the violence interrupters, the de-escalation techniques, uh, job training, things of that nature, things that can you know turn somebody away from that lifestyle that they're in and put them on a more productive path. But Operation Ceasefire also has a law enforcement component. It's police who actually identify who those most violent offenders are. And it's typically a U.S. attorney, a federal prosecutor, that takes those cases if those violent individuals don't take advantage of the opportunity to turn their life around. If they continue to persist in committing violent crimes, then their cases get referred to federal court. No plea bargains are offered, and they end up getting put away for 20, 30, 40 years or more. That has to be a component to a community violence intervention strategy, because otherwise, again, there are no consequences. You're offering the help. But if that help is turned down, what happens? They continue to get a slap on the wrist. They continue to get offered plea bargains. They continue to return back onto the streets. And they continue to believe, with good reason, that the criminal justice system is not really interested in holding them accountable for their crimes. So I, I dispute the idea that, that uh, you know, the, the carrot-only approach is actually beneficial in reducing violent crime. You have to ensure that there are consequences as well. But check this out. I found this to be absolutely fascinating. Again, this is from the Wall Street Journal, quoting Giffords, the Giffords Law Center to Prevent Gun Violence. Check out this quote. The most effective programs share a common premise borne out by years of data. A very small and readily identifiable segment of a city's population is responsible for the vast majority of that city's gun violence. By strategically intervening with this small population, usually only a few hundred people, these programs have been able to cut gun homicide rates by as much as 50% in as little as two years. The most effective program out there, according to a gun control group, has nothing to do with gun control. Think about that for a second. Giffords didn't say the most effective strategy besides banning guns 
the most effective strategy outside of banded magazines, the most effective strategy beyond waiting periods, beyond gun rationing, beyond all of the restrictions that they want to put on legal gun owners. No. Gifford says the most effective programs share a common premise, a very small and readily identifiable segment of a city's population is responsible for the vast majority of that city's gun violence. Which begs the question, since Giffords and other gun control groups are apparently able to acknowledge this, why do they continue to persist in wanting to create new crimes out of our right to keep and bear arms? Knowing that that's not effective at fighting violent crime, knowing that the vast majority of violent crime is committed by a very, uh, committed by a very small number of Americans, why do they continue to persist in trying to make it illegal to own an AR-15 or a 17-round magazine or to buy more than one gun a month? or to purchase a farm without having to go through a 10-day waiting period. Why? Because gun control is not about crime control. Gun control is about reducing the number of legal gun owners. Now, look, maybe there's going to be an impact on the violent crime rate, but that's not the primary motivation. The primary motivation is the destruction of a civil right. When it comes to fighting crime, we know what works. Even the gun control advocates know what works. And it's not gun bans. It's not magazine bans. It's not infringing on the right to keep and bear arms. It's targeting violent criminals. It's ensuring that there is an opportunity for them to change their ways and ensuring that there is a space for them in prison for the next two or three decades if they don't. That's what works. And Susan Rice, I'm glad to hear her say, you know, well, it's, it's interesting that, you know, this was such a, a priority for these law enforcement agencies. Mm-hmm. But is that going to actually change anything from the Biden administration? Is that going to change their desire to, again, create criminals out of law-abiding gun owners? Nope. Because fighting crime is a means to an end. They want Americans to feel like, uh, they feel confident that the White House is, you know, trying to address violent crime. But the way the White House is actually trying to do it remains by going after legal gun owners and infringing on their right to keep and bear arms which shouldn't make anybody feel good, quite frankly. All right, let's turn our attention now to today's Armed Citizen story, our good deed of the day, and our recidivist report will start there. From Oklahoma, a man arrested on a murder charge in a uh, fatal shooting in Tulsa, already on probation for an aggravated assault conviction. Yep, 20-year-old Darian Ward, charged with first-degree murder in the June 20th fatal shooting at an apartment complex, arrested last Thursday. Booked into the Tulsa County Jail on charges of first-degree murder, as well as a possession of a firearm after a felony conviction. He was charged in the uh, shooting death of 42-year-old Joel Russell, uh, who was shot and killed back on June the 20th. Now, as it turns out, the uh, 20-year-old suspect, Darian Ward, had been convicted in January of this year for an aggravated assault back in September of last year. And Ward was sentenced to five years in prison as a result of that aggravated assault conviction. That sentence was then suspended. So rather than doing five years in prison, Mr. Ward was given probation. Yeah, and he was released under the Department of Corrections supervision. When the murder charge was filed, an application to revoke that suspended sentence was also filed. Application says Ward failed to report to his supervising authority. Now, the officer failed to locate Ward after many attempts, uh, which kind of seems like closing the barn door after the horses have escaped, if you ask me. Begging the question, why was somebody convicted of a violent felony 
released to the streets when he received a five-year prison sentence. Again, the problems that we have in our criminal justice system are not relegated to deep blue states. Oklahoma is a great state when it comes to protecting the Second Amendment. I mean, my goodness gracious, it's constitutional carry, passed Second Amendment sanctuary legislation this year. Can't really ask for much more out of Oklahoma when it comes to protecting our right to keep and bear arms. But Oklahoma, like every other state in the nation, has some real issues in the criminal justice system that allows for violent individuals like Mr. Ward to escape consequences for their actions until their crimes, you know, end up on the front page of the paper or they leave the nightly news. And then, and only then, do we seem to pay attention. Today's armed citizen story from Houston, Texas, where a dad held an intruder at gunpoint after he caught him peeping into his daughter's window. But he's also uh, complaining that it took a little while for uh, police to get there. Uh, Ike Umar, who lives in the Galleria area of uh, Houston, Texas, said that it was uh, just a couple days ago when he woke up in the middle of the night to find a stranger in his backyard, said he called 911 for help several times. He says as he was waiting for officers to arrive, he was terrified that something would happen to his wife or their six-month-old daughter. But uh, he's pretty torqued at the slow response by police as well. He said, my wife woke me up. She said, hey, I think somebody's in the backyard. So I moved the curtain and I see the face of a guy who's trying to look inside. My daughter's bed is right there. Uh, his home surveillance system caught a shirtless tattooed intruder sneaking into the backyard around three o'clock last Tuesday morning. Umar said, uh, hey, who are you? What are you doing? He said, that's when I did my gun thing, like I loaded my gun. He heard that and just up went his hands. Umar said that the man did not have a weapon, told him he was trying to find a place to hide from gang members who wanted to hurt him. Umar said when he said gang, six men and guns, I'm not thinking about my protection. I'm like, how can I keep these guys away long enough from my house so that my daughter and my wife don't get hurt? Uh, officers arrived about, uh, at, well, at least more than 20 minutes after the uh, the phone call was made. Umar says you're waiting five minutes, then 10 minutes, then 15 minutes, then 20, and you're wondering, what the hell's going on? Umar said when officers arrived, uh, they told him that they had had a busy night. He said, quote, I don't care what they say. That's no excuse. If somebody's house is broken in and I'm holding somebody at gunpoint, I have to wait 47 minutes for help? Honestly, he says, I lost total faith in the Houston Police Department today. Well, Houston dealing with officer shortages, just like a, a lot of other places around the country. Uh, and I can understand Umar's frustration. The, the only thing that I would tell him is be thankful you live in a state that recognizes your right to keep and bear arms for defense of yourself, your wife, and your six-month-old child. Because if you lived in someplace like New York as opposed to Texas, not only would you have been waiting 47 minutes to police, for police to arrive, but you would not likely have been able to have a firearm uh, for your protection or for your family's protection. So uh, be glad that you live in the uh, Lone Star State. Finally today, our good deed of the day. Check out this headline. Two weeks on the job, and an officer trainee saves a woman swept away by floodwaters. This was in McLeansboro, Illinois. It happened a Friday afternoon, widespread rain in the uh, area, and uh, Police Chief Nathan Taylor said that a woman had been uh, traveling on a highway, which uh, does tend to flood when it rains. Call came in just before 5 o'clock in the afternoon. Officers and firefighters responded quickly. Uh, once they arrived on scene, Officer Corey Wade waded into the water. He's only been with the department for uh, two weeks. Put the driver on his back, carried her to safety. 
The uh, woman was uninjured. Water subsided about 30 minutes later, allowing a, a tow truck to receive uh, to uh, retrieve her vehicle, rather. But uh, at that point, she was already warm and dry, thanks again to the uh, quick thinking and uh, fast actions of Officer Corey Wade there in McLeansboro, Illinois, in the right place at the right time, willing and able to do the right thing. And Officer, we thank you, sir, for your very, very good deed. Now, that is all the time we've got for you on this edition of Bearing Arms Cam and Company. I will remind you, though, uh, you can become a VIP member of Bearing Arms and get exclusive analysis, commentary, and more. All you got to do is go to bearingarms.com slash subscribe. Use the promo code GUNS to get 25% off of your VIP membership. I'll also remind you, if you are a Louisiana gun owner, make sure that you are in contact with your state representative, your state senator. We've got a veto override session that kicks off tomorrow. Constitutional carry is on the agenda. There are some rumors of some Republicans going a little squishy here. We don't want to see that. So, uh, again, they need to be hearing from you. You need to be telling them that uh, you expect them to stand firm in their commitment to support your Second Amendment rights. And we'll have more on that uh, coming up later in the week. Thanks again for being a part of this edition of Bearing Arms Cam and Company. Until we talk again, be well, be safe, and be free.